the coffee house sessions. Dr. Riddle, we were just speaking a moment ago and you were telling us about some of the monuments in Virginia and if I remember correctly, it was Charlottesville that have recently fallen on bad times because of Black Lives Matter and uh, all these other things. Is is that true? Which monuments were, were they in particular? Well, I just, you know, might start by saying Virginia is a beautiful state. It really is. Um, we have four seasons and um, it's the, the weather is very temperate year round. Uh, it's a gorgeous state it, and it really has everything. I mean, we have the ocean. You can go to Virginia Beach and you're in the you're at the ocean, you know, on the Atlantic Ocean. Um, I live actually in the closer to the mountains. I live in the uh, I live in central Virginia, but. I, I live a 20-minute drive from the Shenandoah National Park uh, where the Appalachian Trail runs through and it's beautiful scenic views, uh, the Blue Ridge Mountains. But then also just historically, aside from the sort of the natural distinctives of the state, Virginia obviously has been a very important state in the history of the United States. And so um, five minutes from where, from where I'm sitting, five-minute drive is Monticello which was Thomas Jefferson's home. Um, and uh, everyone in the United States knows Monticello because if you have a nickel, a five cent piece, on the back of it is a, is a, and it's an engraving of Monticello. So anybody who visits the US, if you, if you are still mm-hmm. using coins, I guess with digital currency, you know, few people are, are now exchanging money, but we, it's still, you, know, you anyway, you, you pay for something with a dollar and you get change back, you can get a nickel and on the back is Monticello. So anyways, it's a state with a lot of history. It's called the, um, the, you know, the, the, the state of presidents and there's a lot of civil war history, but um, uh, in addition to, to uh, Monticello Jefferson's home, um, he, one of the things he did was he founded the university of Virginia, which is uh, here in Charlottesville. Um, and uh, like a lot of southern towns uh, in the southern United States, um, there uh, there was in Charlottesville a beautiful park that was called Lee Park, and there mm. was an equestrian statue of Robert E. Lee. Um, if you go just about an hour and a half uh, west of here, you go to Lexington, Virginia, where uh, Lee, after the Civil War, became the president of what was then called Washington College, and then they changed their name to Washington and Lee, and it's it's an elite uh, college that's still there. It still bears his name. And um, anyways, uh, and also in Charlottesville, by the courthouse, there was a beautiful equestrian statue of Thomas Stonewall Jackson, uh, who was, you know, a great southern military commander and we're also not far from the the so-called valley campaigns took place in the shenandoah valley of virginia uh where where jeffrey where um uh, stonewall jackson with a, a a much smaller force of soldiers was able to defeat large union armies in the early days of the war but anyway so it's a southern heritage town sorry go ahead that that that's where they slayed uh, Brits, basically. Well, in in the, in the Shenandoah Valley, 
Yeah, yeah. yeah, back in the revolutionary period, I'm sure that mm-hmm. I'm sure that took place as well. <laughs> um, you, you, you made Johnny made uh, made mention earlier about Paul Revere, and yeah, um, Paul, tell Paul me about Revere Paul Revere. Was, well, Paul Revere was in Boston, in Massachusetts, and uh, okay. I've been actually to his house there. So that's quite a long ways from here. That's about a yeah, ten-hour right. drive from here. But um, but anyways. Revere, one of the famous things, but actually probably he was probably made more famous by I think it was Longfellow's poem, "The Midnight Ride" of Paul Revere, where he he warned the residents of Boston that the British were coming, and the, every American school child knows the British are coming, the British are coming, etc. But anyways, there was actually there was actually a sort of a southern version of that. There was a guy named Jack Jewett who uh, rode to warn. Um, the uh, the folk uh, that were in uh, uh, Virginia that they needed to flee because the British were coming. And so we have a local figure who's called Jack Jewett, who also warned the colonial government that they needed to flee to escape the British. So anyway, so it's, this is, it's a historic area. But I was going to say yeah. back to a lot of people, uh, you know, when you say Charlottesville, I would say prior to 2017, the city was this, this small town, really, only about 60,000 people. 20,000 of those are students at the University of Virginia. Um, most people knew the town because of UVA and because of Monticello, um, Jefferson's home. But, of course, in 2017, there was an infor- unfortunate uh, rally here that uh, took place uh, and then there was a riot basically that broke out. You know, oddly enough, I was in Ukraine that weekend. My my oldest daughter was uh, was in the Peace Corps, U.S. Peace Corps, and was teaching uh, in uh, Kostopol, Ukraine. And my wife and I went to visit her. And um, it was interesting because she was she was also attending while she was there for two and a half years, a Baptist church in Kostopol, Ukraine. And the weekend we went to visit her, they we got to observe a wonderful baptismal service. With we saw twenty three people baptized in the little uh, wow. river that runs through the town there. But anyways, while we were there, uh, the, that's when the riot happened in August of twenty seventeen. And so it was so odd. We got back to her apartment, and I went to check my email, and all the you know international news feeds were about the riot. Uh, that, that that took took place in Charlottesville, and uh, of course, one of the aftermaths of that was that um, you know uh, that they ended up the city council ended up removing the Robert E. Lee statue, removing the Stonewall Jackson statue, um, and they even removed a statue to uh, George Rogers Clark of Lewis and Clark fame because they, were, they didn't like the, the way that uh, uh, Sacagawea was depicted in the statue, although it was depicting her as guiding them. Um, wow. But anyway, so, so we've sort of been through that, you know, that, that rash of can- cancel culture. Um, and here in central Virginia and in Charlottesville in particular. And um, um, anyways, it's been kind of, uh, you know, although we, we, we certainly wouldn't defend any of the the, the, the you know, uh, the, the horrible things that, that that happened in history, like slavery. Um, but it, 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 on the other hand, it's kind of sad to see 
uh, a lot of the, these historical monuments be taken away. Uh, so anyway, sorry, you were going to say, Johnny, something. Well, I was just saying, just, just, just hearing a bit about your context in Virginia and then and then your daughter's uh, work over in Ukraine. You really are at the intersection of quite a lot of old and current history, aren't you? Where, where you are. <laughs> Um, and I sort of think if you if if there was somewhere to put a a finger on the the pulse of a nation, Virginia's quite a place to be in terms of where the, the development of the nation, and then where some of the later ideologies have sort of uh, bubbled up, and then also your your family connection into into Ukraine. That's quite extraordinary. Yeah, I have nothing. I'm not responsible for the war in Ukraine, though. I w- I want to make no, it clear. No, no, no. <laughs> See, but but you know, Joe, Joe Biden announced his campaign. If you go back, if you go back and look at Joe Biden when he announced his that he was going to be running for president, I'm not sure if he did it in Charlottesville or at least he made reference. He said the reason I'm running is because of Charlottesville. So, anyways, this little sleepy Southern University town has, uh, you know, definitely gotten on on the map. And you know, we are only we are only about two hours drive from Washington D.C., so we're fairly close to the capital. And uh, but, anyways, it has historically been a been a been an important uh, place. Well, let, let, let me let me do that thing we like to do in in, in coffee house sessions, which is crunch the gears and do a. Um, a, a, a stretching segue into what we'd like to chat to you about. <laughs> I'm you, excited to hear exactly what we're going Well, um, well be, 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 being a man who's ministering in a, in a historical context, surrounded by monuments, and obviously 2017 wasn't a good year to be a statue. I sort of think about those folks that make their living by, you know, painting themselves silver and being a statue and you sort of throw money. <laughs> it wasn't a good year for being a statue. But kind of um, a place that marked its history by by um, by by memorial, by by having objects, artifacts that mark that, that stand for for history and then encountering that that modern council culture, whatever we want to call it, where where the, the, the modern wants to progress deleting the past, not not just sort of not not conserving the past or learning from the past, but wanting to to cut off the past like it never happened and start afresh. Here's my 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 crunching the gears. That that instinct that's always there in every culture that sort of says, let's forget the past, throw off the parents, let's stretch out into the new infects the church how has it and, and i it, it infects the church in terms of doctrine like we just need the new we don't need the old it affects the church in terms of interpretation of scripture we don't need the old the new what's the new book on the trinity you know or what's the new book on hermeneutics uh, because you know to read the old will be to to go to a less developed time how has that kind of instinct, the kind of chronological snobbery, you might say, impacted our understanding of the Bible text itself? Yeah, well, I mean, obviously, I think that's a great question and it's a great segue uh, into, into the It into wasn't discussion. too crunching of the gears? I think you did it masterfully. You didn't Excellent. you didn't strip the gears at all, in my, in my humble opinion. Um yeah, I, yeah, I, I definitely think there is sort of the tyranny of the modern, you know, where everything is new and improved. And if it's the newer it is, the better it is. And we need to replace old things with new things. 
And, you know, I do think that is uh, dangerous. It, 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 if we've got, uh, if, if we have a historical amnesia and we've forgotten what, what we've, the, the, what we've been handed from the past, I mean, you know, even on, on a biblical basis, you know, you think about Paul in first Corinthians, um, you know, uh, 11 or first Corinthians 15, uh, talking about the things that I have received, I pass on to you. Mm-hmm. And, and so part of being a Christian is having a paradosis, having a tradition. Um, and it's about being a custodian of that and handing it on. And, 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 and so it's, there is something inherently conservative in that we have something to conserve. I'm not talking about being a Tory or being a Republican. Yeah, I'm, talking yeah. about, I'm talking about conserving, uh, uh, or as Jude puts it in Jude 3, you know, that we should earnestly contend for the faith, mm-hmm. you know, which, which, we, which has been handed on to us. And when it comes to Scripture, uh, we've certainly seen in the last 150 years, we've seen a kind of mad rush to embrace the new and whether that's new editions of the modern critical text to supplant the old editions, uh, or whether that's new translations. And, you know, uh, I guess in the English speaking world, I mean, we just have this, you know, incredible rush. It's like every year there's a new translation coming out. Do we really need all these new translations or, you know, it's also the marketing, maybe the capitalism, you know, it's it, it, it's not always new translations. It's sometimes it's some of the the already existing modern translations, but repackaged in new study Bibles. And so we've got to have a, a study Bible for every niche audience. You know, we've got to have the teenager study Bible. We've got to have the military study Bible. And we've got to have the archaeology study Bible. And. Anyway, so there's this there's this 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 rush to newness, I guess. That, that yeah, I, I just just a just a little just a little wonderment just on, just on on that line of thought, um, because there are loads of new English translations. Uh, it is is one of the, some of the drivers. You've mentioned some of the drivers for that marketing. It is is it also perhaps that there are a number of Christian publishing houses, and that that if they've got their own version of the bible they don't have to kind of pay royalties to somebody else the foundation that owns the other one you know so if crossway can come up with well they don't they own the esv or something but if if you if you've got one line of books that you're churning out and they can all quote your in-house copy of the bible is is, is that that part of it i don't know maybe that's no. just being cynical yeah, well i mean i mean first of all i, I don't want to impugn the motives I, th- I think there's i think there are a lot of people who are well-intentioned and I, I think there are a lot of people who, you know, they do think, well, we've we've got better manuscripts. And so we need we need to have now translations that catch up with, you know, the current state of what the, the academy or scholarship is telling us is a superior text. On the other hand, like you said, I think it is a lot of times a financial decision. Like I, I'm a former Southern Baptist and, uh, you know, as. Southern Baptists are a huge denomination, have typically been, although they're, they're, they're actually having some major difficulties right now. There's a lot of 
questions about what's going to happen in their next their, their next meeting that's upcoming. Mm. There may be there have been a lot of people fleeing from them, leaving them in recent years because of various things. But but anyways, it's a huge organization with tens of thousands of congregations uh, all over the country. And they have a publishing arm called Lifeway. And they produce a lot of literature. They produce a lot of books. They produce Sunday school literature and Bible school literature and, and all sorts of things. But anyway, some years back, for the very reasons you said, they used to, have, they used to in their Sunday school literature, they used to use the King James Version and I think the NIV. And they, and they were having to pay royalties to Zondervan uh, for the NIV. So they came up with a, their own translation. And it was called the Holman Christian Standard Bible. And so they owned it, and then they could use that instead of the NIV. And they actually, a couple of years ago, they um, they revised it. So it's now called the Christian Standard Bible, the CSB. Mm. Um, but, yeah, I think they were motivated by, you know, it's a pragmatic decision, a financial decision. Why should they pay, you know, money to Zondervan for the rights to the NIV when they could just just as well create their own translation. So again, I, I don't want to impugn their motives. I think a lot of people ha, are, are well-intentioned and they want to, but you know, uh, something like the authorized version, it's in the public domain. And, um, and so anybody can use it. And, uh, mm-hmm. and so, uh, but anyways, if you, if you come up with a new translation and it's copyrighted, you can gain the royalties from, from people who make use of it. Yeah. John Mark, so- you're going to say something. Yeah, thank thank you for that. I wonder if we can take the conversation in in this direction. Lots of people who uh, may have heard you before will know that you're a, an advocate for what you might call the traditional text. And I, I certainly know when when you joined us in the UK, you you taught the Gospels uh, course for IRBS uh, here in Manchester, and it was a, a wonderful time. We kind of joked. Uh, that you had your conspiracy theories. And of course, people say kind of they get any whiff of, you know, someone advocating for, for, for example, translations from the TR uh, as well. It's just kind of conspiracy theory stuff. How, how about you give us some of your best conspiracy theories? Give us the case for uh, the traditional text and particularly for our listeners. We really want them to hear your, your argument for a, a confessional doctrine of scriptural preservation through the ages and then we'll have some kind of questions back and forth on on those issues okay well i i i mean you don't want me to to spin out fictional uh conspiracy theories you want me to you want me to tell you my views which some people might might uh yeah i i think one of the things that's happened and i've been in a quite in, involved in quite a bit of uh, online and in-person apologetics uh, about this situation. And, and you know, sometimes, uh, you know, I've been labeled as a King James Version onlyist. And, um, you know, we do, have a, uh, we do have a problem in the U.S. with King James Version onlyism. There, is, there are certain types of fundamentalistic independent Baptist churches that will advertise on their signage, you know, King James Version only. And I think, you know, I, I personally think that 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 raw King James Version onlyism is heretical because it's contrary to uh, what is articulated in chapter one, paragraph eight of our confession. We don't believe that translations 
are inspired. Uh, if we go to chapter one, paragraph eight of our confession, the Bible is immediately inspired in the original Hebrew and Greek. And um, in, in uh, sorry, I'm getting I'm getting far afield from what you wanted me to do, but uh, but no, it's, it's helpful because yeah, I, I think was, that's where where a lot of it comes from. People. Uh, will have met someone who is maybe from more of a, a fundamentalist King James yeah. only perspective, and they want to group anyone who makes a, an argument or you know add kind of argues for the, the the value, the inherent value of the traditional text as as just part of that group. So it's it's helpful to yeah. make that distinction. Well, then a lot of the a lot of those churches that I mentioned, the, the those sort of independent fundamental Baptistic churches. A lot of them are extremely unhealthy, and there are a lot of people I've run into who maybe they grew up in those types of churches, they were damaged by them, and 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 so they think anybody who uses the authorized version or anybody who advocates for the traditional text, that therefore they hold the same sort of unhealthy spiritual views that some of those churches hold. I didn't grow up in that, by the way. I didn't. I, that's not my background. I came out of a more broad evangelical Southern Baptist background that wasn't in, in this sort of, um, um, you know, narrow KJVO, uh, independent uh, IFB, independent fundamental Baptist background. But anyway, so I think sometimes people do that, you know, that what's the psychological term transference. They transfer some of their some of their negative ideas from their past experiences onto me or other people who are advocates for the traditional text. So anyways, back to your, your, your question, your, 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 your statement. So, you know, what is the text of the Bible? That's a, that's a really foundational point, particularly for those of us who are confessional Protestants, because we believe in the authority of the Bible. And this is at the heart of our epistemology. What is the Bible? And, you know, and so, uh, so what is the proper text of the Bible? And if we if we look at, uh, you know, historically, there was a, um, a watershed moment in the history of the world uh, when in the 15th century, the printing press was invented. And, you know, prior to that, it's not just in the in the field of the study of Bible, the Bible or religion, but it's literature in, in general. Everything was hand copied. And so uh, for for fifteen hundred years, uh, the, the New Testament, for example, you know, was there were hand copied manuscripts. But there was this there was this watershed where there where there was a convergence, a sort of a perfect storm of providential circumstances there was the invention of printing. There was the fall of Constantinople in 1453 and a lot of Greek refugees who come into Western Europe bearing Greek manuscripts with them. There's the Renaissance. There's the revival of, of, of classical learning, people wanting to go back to the sources and learn Hebrew and learn Greek. And, 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 and then you had then the, the, the cherry on the top is the Protestant Reformation. Um, the desire to uh, to revive, restore, reform uh, the church, and, uh, and 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 to return to um, biblical patterns for the faith and biblical doctrines and so forth. 
So during that time, there was a consensus text that was, uh, that was printed, and it was deemed to be by godly men, by godly scholars, to be the authoritative text. And with respect to the Old Testament, it was the traditional Hebrew text called the Masoretic text. And with respect to the New Testament, it was the text that was called the received text or the Textus Receptus. And that became the basis for scholarly study, for commentaries. Um, and then with respect to translations, as the Bible was translated, that became the basis for all the classic Protestant translations. For those of us who are English speaking, 1525, we've got Tyndale's New Testament. Um, first time the Bible had been translated from the original Greek into English. And then we've got a series of English translations, you know, whether that's the Matthews Bible, the Great Bible, the Bishop's Bible, the Geneva Bible. And, and of course, the authorized version, the King James Version in 1611, you know, it sort of then corners the market, becomes the most popular English translation. But it's not just an, an English translation issue. This is true. Um, for all the, the modern European languages, the Bible was translated. And I, I lived for a few years in Hungary. And if you, if you go to, to Hungary, there's a Bible called the Karoi Gaspar Bible, which is sort of their equivalent to the King James Version. It was actually done in 1590. So 21 years before the authorized version, they had the Karoi Gaspar Bible, which you know, in the Old Testament was based on the Masoretic text and the New Testament was based on the Texas Receptus. In Spain, you know, Spain, the, the Reina Valera Bible. And so there was a there's a classic Bible in every you know European language. And so this this these Bibles, these translations were used again for this for the pastors and the scholars, it was the traditional text that was used in exegesis and in study and so forth. But then in the 19th century, we had the rise of uh, modern universities. We had the rise of the modern historical critical method. And one of the sub-disciplines of the modern historical critical method was textual criticism. And we also had, we had some, uh, not so much discoveries, although there were some significant discoveries, but I think more importantly was the ability to publish and disseminate widely um, a knowledge of manuscripts like Vaticanus, Codex Vaticanus had been known since the, the 15th century. It had been categorized in the Vatican Library, but it was published in the 19th century. And, now, and how old? Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, just, just how old was, was Vaticanus? When, when was that? first discovered so for example if if they were to date that text what what date would they say that's from well i think the uh, modern scholars would date vaticanus they they would say based on the writing so based on orthography uh they would date it to the to the fourth century so maybe they would say around 350 or so um but it wasn't the first record we have of anybody taking notice of it was, I think, in the 15th century. 
uh, it, it appears in a catalog uh, and that, that was when they were catalog, uh, cataloging the material that was in the Vatican Library. Um, another big discovery, though, in the realm of discovery uh, in the 19th century, a German scholar, Constantine uh, Tischendorf, went to the um, to the uh, St. Catherine's Monastery on Mount Sinai and discovered for a Westerner the Codex Sinaiticus or Sinaiticus. Um, and then it ended up being purchased by uh, the Russian Tsar and then it was sold to uh, to uh, Britain and now it's in the it's in the, the British Library in London. Um, but anyways, but, but that was also that was uh, published, you know, um, facsimile copies of it were published in the 19th century. And so scholars could see it and read it. And so anyways, you had you had you had the, the discipline of modern textual criticism develop as a subset of the modern historical critical method. And then in 1881, uh, Westcott and Hort, you know, two British scholars published the the, their modern critical edition of the New Testament. And that was also part of uh, um, connected to a, a, a project in which the, um, the authorized version was being revised as the English revised version. But instead of basing that translation on the traditional text, they based it on in the New Testament, the Westcott and Hort text. And so it was really the beginning of modern translations based on a modern critical text. And that's then that sort of opened the floodgates for a series of, in English, a lot of translations. Uh, in uh, I think they did the New Testament, the English Revised Version, 1881, the, the entire Bible in 1885. In 1901, uh, they produced in the U.S., the American Standard Version. Um, 1952, the Revised Standard Version. Um, and then, you know, from the Revised Standard Version, which is a sort of a daughter of the American Standard Version, which is a daughter of the English Revised Version, um, you had uh, in 1989 the New Revised Standard Version, which was widely used in mainline Protestant churches. They actually have come out, I think, last year with another revision of the New Revised Standard Version. Um, but also in 2001, you had the English Standard Version, mm. which which was which was is a revision of the RSV. It's not a new translation, but it's a revision of the RSV. And now that has become pretty popular in a lot of evangelical and particularly Calvinistic and Reformed evangelical churches. So, and, and, and so um, there was this, the floodgate of new translations. And so again, the, the question that, that I and some other people are asking is, was this a wise move? Was it, was this, was it wise for us to abandon the traditional text? And, um, you know, we're, we're having a lot of conversation these days about retrieval mm. and about uh, about the, you know, in the, with respect to the doctrine of the Trinity. You know, was it wise 
to embrace social Trinitarianism and to abandon, um, you know, uh, Orthodox, Nicene um, uh, Christianity with respect to the articulation of the doctrine of the Trinity. And I, I, I like to think that we're, we're just posing a, a parallel question, and that is, uh, should we retrieve the traditional text, or I've called it the confessional text? Um, and I mean, it, uh, it, it certainly seems like a, a lot of people are not directly, but indirectly going back to that traditional text. That It was only a, a a year ago, I read Matthew Barrett's Simply Trinity. I think that book became Christianity Today's Book of the Year for either 2021 was, or 2022. Yeah. And that, for example, has quite a detailed argument for the traditional text on John 118 and the translation of Only Begotten. And the reason Barrett wanted that language is because it was so crucial in kind of Nicaea 325 and Nicaea Constantinople in, in 381. And it, it's very interesting how this discussion is being had nowadays, at least not only in, for example, you know, New Testament or maybe textual crit- criticism circles, uh, but also in kind of systematic theology circles where people are asking questions should we go to the traditional text because that's actually the text from which these doctrines were drawn to an extent and it's it's just interesting to see that here's here's a, a quick question do do you see for, for example i i know that john owen had a very high regard for the traditional hebrew masoretic text for example he referred to it maybe as and this is definitely a paraphrase, but kind of that most excellent text. He referred to it clearly as this is the word of God given to us. Do, do you see there in in this modern critical movement the reevaluation of the text, maybe the taking out of some parts, the addition of some others as an extension of the Enlightenment movement that almost the historical critical method came out of is is that question clear is it almost an extension would you say of the historical critical method uh and just applied to the text or would you say it's something different that took us away from maybe that view that owen had of this text yeah i mean definitely i i think i think that um you know the 19th century university context was influenced by the Enlightenment, but was influenced by, um, you know, emphasis upon reason, rationalism. Um, and, you know, I, I think about, you know, the parallel uh, of something like the search, so-called search for the historical Jesus, hmm. uh, Albert Schweitzer. You know, he says in the introduction to that book, we want to throw off the shackles of dogma. And... And also there was there was um, there was, a uh, you know, I think the idea in that time and I know we've got Johnny here is knows quite a bit about postmodernism and so forth. But in the in the modern period, there was, a, you know, a confidence in science 
we can put on the white lab coat and we have no presuppositions. We can just objectively look at the evidence and we can come up with our conclusions. And I, I think that in the 19th century, there really were people who thought we can apply a scientific method and we can reconstruct the autograph. We can restore the, the text has been corrupted and we can restore it. Um, and they had a they had a confidence in that. Um, on the negative side, though, um, they they were not thinking of a dogmatic approach to scripture. Hmm. They were also not thinking of what what the the, the pre enlightenment uh, thinkers uh, the way they would have approached it. First of all, they would have believed in divine preservation. And they would not have seen the Bible as just like any other piece of literature because it, it's, it's an inspired work. It's a God-breathed work. It would have, you know, God's providential care over it. Um, but, but, but now, though, um, we've reached another phase so that now in the modern academy, they're no longer talking about trying to reconstruct the original. If you read the, the most recent cutting edge scholarship on textual criticism, the leading lights, including people who are in places like the University of Birmingham, which in the, in the UK, which is a, a center for textual criticism in the English speaking world, they're now saying, you know, we, we can't reconstruct the original. We don't know what it is. And instead, we should, in fact, they would say it's, um, it's, it's, a, it's a kind of an arrogance to think that you could know what the Bible actually is. In, instead of looking for the text of Scripture, we should look for the texts of Scripture. Mm. Instead of trying to understand early Christianity, singular, we need to understand early Christianities. And, you know, there were Gnostics who they, they had some, you know, they had their corner of the truth. And we had the, the Orthodox or the Paleo-Orthodox, and they had their views. And we had the Ebionites, and they had their views. And all these views are, all these views are legitimate. And they're all part of Scripture. And, and so we, we have to accept, you know, some diversity of opinion about what the text of the Bible is. We can never, there is no single text of the Bible. There are simply various texts. And you know, that's that's the spirit of this age. That's that. And, it, you know, but the, my question is the question other people, some other people are raising is, is that is that something that's fitting, proper and good for the church? Is that good for believers that we would have an open ended Bible or to, I'll quit talking, but. There's also a big emphasis now on subjective reconstruction. D.C. Parker, who taught at University of Birmingham, was a, now retired, but was a leading light in modern textual criticism, uh, gave the Lyle lectures at Oxford a couple years ago. And, um, you know, he, he, uh, he presents this idea of we live in this wonderful digital age, and he really envisions there's going to come a time where Everybody can construct their own Bible. Every individual can sit down and they can determine 
you know, if you think the if you think the uh, the traditional ending of Mark is original, you can keep it in your Bible, but somebody else might not, and so they can take it out of their Bible, and we can all have basically we can all have our own Bibles, we can all have our own individual Bibles. Well, and he sees this as wonderful. I, um, I see it as chaos. I I can't see how. how. How does he get people onto those barricades? Come with me. The future is all your own individual Bibles. I'm, I'm not, I don't know why that's exciting in any shape or form. Just, I mean, you could do that now anyway. You just cut and paste into Word. I don't know how the digital, that is the triumph of um, subjectivism over everything. And is it, earlier on, you were talking about, you know, the, 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 the Reformation and post-Reformation period has that return to the sources. Mm. And, um, and I was sort of sitting here thinking that, that that's, a, that's a good thing. However, th- there are some elements of it. If you detach it from a theology of the Bible, that can lead you into, through the Enlightenment, into a radical empiricism that sort of says, uh, like, so... The only things that are true are those things that appear to me. And then you fill in, how do things appear to me? And you can then you can sort of play around with in, in with various models, can't you? You can go, the, the, and, you know, listeners to this podcast will know I want to blame everything on Kant. I think it's useful to have have a big bad guy that you can say it's his fault. But, you know, so so I can't know the thing in itself, but I could know subjectively now now uh, so i might i might play with the idea that i can know things as they empirically appear to me so i've got to go to the data i'm going to be radically data driven but i'm only got the what's in front of me and oh now there's there's new bits of greek manuscript coming um and then then you can see later on that it becomes um well well maybe it's interesting that it's not a surprise in a in a view of the world that says the world is only true in as much as it presents itself to me. That eventually you go, well, I can't know the world at all then. And then and then what I can only know and be sure of is perhaps a local community's reading of the text or the, the what becomes important is the reception of the text in a community. And you get communal views of of, of the contents. Um, and there is a parallel, isn't there, with them? Um, uh, th- th- this is where I'm going to land on a question in a second. Um, but um, there's a parallel, as you said. There's there's local kind of Christianities. There's local individual Bibles in systematic theology. There's this kind of, and I think it comes from a, a John Frame kind of perspectivalism, which is just absolutely Kantian, as far as I can see. There you go. There's my cards on the table, and what I think of John Frame. You get local theologies. So, so, th- th- so, so, all the, what, what this comes to, if you, if you, if you look across the disciplines, the idea of a local knowledge, a local Bible, a local Christianity, a local practice, a local community, a local theology, and then somehow the aim is to kind of, like they're all in a Venn diagram, we'll find the overlapping bits and we can have those kind of in common. That's the the world has done that on a number of the disciplines. And so what I love about your question, whether or not anyone. If people are kind of like they have an allergic reaction to the TR debate, 
here's what they really need to hear. As far as I can hear what you're saying, and I'm going to ask, have I got this right? Am I tracking with you? We we cannot ignore that the history of our approach to the Bible's text itself may have gone the same way as our kind of radical subjectivizing of knowledge of everything. And it's at least worth asking the question, what's happened and have we ended up in a funny place? Would that would that be fair? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I just don't know why you hate on Kant so much, but just kidding. Um, <laughs> <Are you> just, <laughs> no, he looks no, like Bob Ryder in my I'm, head. I'm, in a I'm very pleased. I'm very pleased with that articulation, and I really feel like you're hearing me. And I think one of the things I one of the things I've gotten that sometimes I, I've gotten frustrated about is people haven't been willing to hear that. Instead, they wanted to jump to you're a fundamentalist, you're a KJVO, whatever, and. Yeah, that's. I think you got it. That's the nuance of can we at least ask the question? Are we at least allowed to ask the question, was this wise? We're downstream from it now. Has this helped the church? Has this given us strength? Has it given us unity? Um, and, and and so yeah, I, I think I think I, I I appreciate you for hearing that because that is that is exactly the question I'm asking. Well, I've, I, I don't, uh, John Mark, you might have another question. I've, I've got two questions. One's quite a specific one. I know that anyone listening to this podcast will be surprised I might have a specific question because um, I usually waffle. Um, <laughs> one is I'd love to hear a, an articulation of a theological approach to the preservation of the text that is beyond a kind of, well, God providentially managed. Because you, you could do the pro, you can play the providence card and be a, te- a textual critic, right? You can just go, well, he's providentially. So a, a, a theology that gives us a what the Bible is before a kind of a, a, a theology that's attuned to and gives us ontology before you get to the only things that are true and can exist are things in terms of I know them. You, you, you know, that sort of a, that pre-enlightenment approach to what is the Bible theologically? But secondly, I, I've just got going off in my head that the eternal functional subordination of the sun debate and the particular kinds of things that have been driven through modern modern texts so you know the the latest versions of the esv some have called the eternal subordination version because they've done funny things with authority sticking it in various places they've also done a kind of a a fiddle on or um a novel reading of what it means for um the man to rule over the woman or to desire the woman to desire her husband in genesis chapter three as part of the fall to try and counter feminism or something and, and have a, have a, 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 you know, there's, there's a, there's a, there's a new, the, the later translations do something slightly differently. Don't they there? The sort of the idea, one of sort of an idea that, that the, the woman uh, that, that Eve want, wants to sort of dominate or, or desire her husband's position in some kind of way, which I understand was a reading that didn't really predate the 1970s. However, here's my two things. So then it, I'd love to hear the, the, the nutshell version of, of, of a theological reading of of what the Bible is that that, mm-hmm. that would 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 help us here get to the pre-Kantian nightmare, um, the, 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 the 
past the nightmare <laughs> and back to back to how it was before pre-Kantian walked into the rebel camp um, with his naughty ideas. Um, but also, practically, we are living with some theology being driven through Bible translations, which is not which is novel. I'd love to hear your comments on that and just how we might sort some of those things out. Anyway, there we go. Well, obviously, I, mean, I appreciate the question, but it's, it's, a, it's a big question. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I know that it's a short podcast time, but just, let me, if I could just try to articulate just a little bit. Um, well, I mean, I, I think where do we get the idea uh, of the idea that, 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 that God's word would be, um, um, uh, that it would be, uh, we would be able to locate it in a text and know it. Um, I, I think it would be linked to the doctrines of inspiration and preservation. Mm. You know, both of those are articulated in chapter one, paragraph eight of the confession that the Bible is immediately inspired. And it has been by his singular care and providence kept pure in all ages. Where does that come from? I think it comes from a pre-critical reading of the Bible itself. So what is the teaching of the Bible? We've got a we've got a a sovereign God, a God uh, who extends care and provision for His people, a God who who inspired God's Word, um, and so I was just thinking of just a few passages. I think the plain sense actually the, the traditional text view generally resonates with people in the pew. It generally resonates with ordinary Christians. Because they, they read the Bible and they read Psalm 12, 6 and 7. The words of the Lord are pure words as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. Now, I will say there's actually a lot of questions about how properly to translate, interpret those verses because uh, the thou shalt keep them. There's a question of what is the antecedent? Is the antecedent to that the words of the Lord or is it is the antecedent the people of God? You know, but anyway, so there's a question, but there's a plain sense. Most people reading the Bible, you know, would sort of intuitively or uh, Psalm 33, verse 11. The counsel of the Lord standeth forever. The thoughts of his heart to all generations. Somehow the God's counsel and his thoughts will be, you know, held to all generations. Um, or in the New Testament, uh, one of the proof texts for preservation will be Matthew 5, uh, 18. For verily I say unto you, till heaven or earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. And so it's like an idea of meticulous preservation of the very words, not just the ideas and the thoughts or the, the big doctrines or concepts, but the words are preserved. And so I think that was a sort of pre-critical understanding. And so this led people in the, uh, in the, 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 the Reformation, post-Reformation era um, to sort of think in, in these ways so that they believed that when they had faithful copies of the Bible or faithful printed editions, that they had the autographs. To have the faithful autographs is to have the autographs. 
and uh, and so that was that that's sort of the I think the basis for having a received and accepted text and also just on, on another plain sense reading there's an idea that God's people have the ability to recognize uh, scripture and uh, a passage that would be um, quoted would be from from John 10 um, verse 27 my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me that God's the sheep hear the voice of the shepherd in the text that is authentic and and true so so I'm sorry go ahead you're no, gonna just, say, just just to check that I'm I'm tracking with you here so is is the switch that's thrown as it were from the pre-critical to the critical let's call him Darth Kant and his and 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 his Sith Lord <laughs> come in and they they just say be skeptical so they yeah. introduce, and, and actually the word critical wherever you encounter it is problematic in fact it's 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 quite a Kantian term right because because it it basically means now just be skeptical of the data all the time is that yeah and so so you go from a my sheep hear my voice to an approach to everything as a basically a a, a rationalist skeptic and that's yeah. the, and then and then nothing else can be quite the same afterwards is that, is there's, that there's, a, there's, there's a as modern scholars would put it there's a hermeneutics of suspicion yeah okay yeah yeah uh, yeah which pervades well, everything well and then and then let's go back to the whole empirical thing we have the idea that I I can I I can use human reasoning to reconstruct the text and if I have insufficient empirical data I can reject a reading because there's not enough extant evidence as I judge it that as opposed to I think a, the pre-critical view was is it faithful mm. do the sheep hear the voice of the shepherd in this um, that that's it's a different it's it's a different kind of standard. Then we have you know then we have the situation when like we, uh, John Mark threw out you know John one eighteen, uh, no man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, He hath declared Him. That's been the you know that's the traditional text reading. There's there's both a textual issue here and there's a translational issue here, and that is. With respect to text, is it the word son or is it the word God? Is it huios, son, or theos, God? And then there's the question with the, the preceding word, monogenes. Is it only begotten or is it unique, one and only? And mm. so for the first time, it was the Revised Standard Version, 1952, that rendered uh, this as the only God rather than the only begotten son. And um, some even evangelicals sort of celebrate that. Well, this is, this becomes another proof text where Jesus is God. Um, that's a good thing. But then under later scrutiny in recent decades, actually it's been just in the last few years, you mentioned Matthew Barrett. Other people said, wait a second, hold on here. This is actually 
a key proof text for the eternal generation of the sun. And then some others have said, you know, maybe that that monogenes reading that has God there is actually a Gnostic reading that wants to see Jesus as a, a demigod and wants to deny the Trinity and wants to deny the idea of the father is uh, is, you know, unbegotten. The son is eternally begotten and the spirit is eternally proceeding from the father and the son. And, and, and then we have a generation of Bible scholars who are not systematicians. Mm. We, we've got, we, we have a, the balkanization of the university departments where there might be somebody who's really good at studying Greek and reading the new Testament and knows the history of modern interpretation of the Bible that usually begins with the modern historical critical method in the 19th century. And they're deeply steeped in that, but they don't know, they don't know historic Orthodox Christian theology. And so they make a decision about a translation here that's divorced from the whole um, Christian tradition and it's reading, interpretation, and translation of its scriptures. And we, if we think about, and I'll, I'll stop talking after this, if you want to offer some feedback, like with, with, with uh, uh, the John 1.18, uh, when, we, when we look at uh, chapter 8, uh, well, is, is it chapter 2 on the doctrine of God? Um, and it talks about... Um, uh, in chapter two, paragraph three of the confession. And it says uh, in this divine and infinite being, there are three subsistences, the father, the word or son and the Holy spirit of one substance, power and eternity, each having the whole divine essence, yet the essence undivided. The father is of none, neither begotten nor preceding. The son is eternally begotten of the father. Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son. But the phrase, the Son is eternally begotten of the Father. And if you look at the proof text, what's the proof text? John 1.14 and John 1.18. To to change it to theos rather than huios is to undermine um, what has been the classic confessional articulation of the eternal relationship between the Father and the Son. And I'm not sure, again, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, there's no conspiracy theory. I don't think the people who did that with the RSV were necessarily trying to undermine the doctrine of the Trinity. I think probably a lot of it was just a probably uh, historical ignorance of why that might be a, a significant passage that shouldn't have been changed. And even on the basis of empirical evidence, it's the majority reading. It's the, it's the consensus reading of Christianity. Hmm. If that makes sense. Mm. It, it it certainly seems like just stepping back from this discussion, we have so much legwork to do in we we've recognized, for example, but before even having this discussion that there's legwork to do in how we read the Bible. There's legwork to do in recovering maybe more of a, a pre-critical view of the one author of scripture. And I think lots of 
people in our circles are really getting hold of that, which is a wonderful thing. But there's almost legwork to do behind that in recognizing that we need to evaluate how the Enlightenment and its influence on basically biblical interpretation and how we approach the preservation or the handing down the tradition of what we regard as the scriptures. Uh, We really have to have that discussion and do the legwork of saying how has has this influenced our approach, not only to how we read the Bible, but to what we believe the Bible is that we are interpreting. And that's so important and, and highlighted by some of these doctrinal issues, which seem to just blow it up. And suddenly it gives it a prominence that we didn't recognize it had before. Yeah, it's a good point. I, I kind of responded to that and something that Johnny said earlier. You know, it, I, it, it struck me a number of times in various contexts that, you know, because this is, this is a conversation being had among, you know, otherwise like-minded brothers. You know, I can have this conversation with my fellow Reformed Baptists, my fellow, you know, Reformed evangelicals or my, my reformed Presbyterian friends and so forth. But I, I mean, if we, if we were talking with them, almost always they would be of the, the people of the traditional conservative type. They would say, yeah, there was, there's some problems with modern historical critical method. There's some problems with, you know, having, you know, skeptical views about the historicity of the Bible or, the, 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 the modern critics challenging the purported authorship of the books or, or, or questioning the, you know, the historicity of the biblical accounts and so forth, or even, you know, on a radical, you know, the, the radical extreme, you know, Boltmanian attempts to demythologize the New Testament. And, you know, we don't have to believe in, a, in an actual physical resurrection of Christ. He was... He was, you know, raised again in their hearts and memories and so forth. Or, uh, you know, th- this sort of extreme skeptical, all that came out of 19th century enlightenment and so forth. So they would say, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's that's hogwash. We, we can't accept that. But what they said about the text, oh, that was neutral. That was just value neutral. Um, well, uh, you know, you have to have the same, you have to have that same, you know, you, you need to question, might there some of their ideas about the text have been influenced by you know, by larger influences and considerations that were impinging upon them during that time? Un- unless you've you've got another question on this issue, Johnny. Uh, this has been a fascinating conversation. I know we've got to wrap up, so I'll um, I, I, we we want to get Jeff back, and if he's happy to, we, we, there's all sorts of conversations that we we'd like to pursue with Jeff from the the life of a pastor to um, to more on on this theme, and um, mm. and I and I think one of the things at Broken Wharf and John Mark, you and I both kind of have a a growing obsession with this kind of what what did the Enlightenment what mischief did the Enlightenment cause and uh, so, so negatively is that we're but positively trying to get back to the thought world 
um, the, the way of understanding uh, of, the, of the writers of the confession and those sorts of things. So it would be, be great to get Jeff back to, to talk about as we mm-hmm. continue to explore those kind of things in a, in a lot of the podcasts we do. And I also want to hear about his work in, in Hungary. Um, so there's all sorts of things that we'd love to get Jeff back on. So I will wait for a further podcast if he's happy to come back to throw some more questions at him. But this has been fascinating. Yeah, it certainly has. I, I wanted to take us just to, to one final question about how, how we approach these issues confessionally. Uh, and I wanted to ask you, Jeff, how, how do you find a, a balance between having strong views on the traditional text, but also so many of, of your brothers, uh, maybe even you know, the brothers that you will be associating with confessionally might not see uh, completely eye to eye with you on this issue. And how, how would you approach that confessionally and almost see the, the necessity to have a conversation? I mean, it, it certainly appears to me like, and tell me if, if this is, you know, something of, of the attitude that you would have, that this is such an important issue but it's it's one that is actually best had within uh, kind of the conf- conversation of continuing reformation and almost continual recovery of our confessional heritage. Uh, and so mm. when speaking with other brothers, we extend first a, a really generous orthodoxy uh, and we unite on those confessional grounds. But at the same time, we almost on that basis ought to have uh, you know, a desire to convince one another uh, of these things and, and almost carry on searching, carry on getting back to those foundations and, and seeking what, what it really means to, to be confessional in this way. How, how do you navigate those, those issues? Yeah, well, it's, it's a great question. And, um, you know, I, 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 first of all, I think I, I certainly recognize that my position on this topic is at present a minority position uh, within our RB circles. I, I think my view is a minority position. And I, I acknowledge that. I recognize that. Um, I want to have, you know, collegial and charitable relationships with my fellow uh, Christians and my fellow, particularly in our RB circles and among our RB, RB churches. And uh, for the most part, I, I feel like I've certainly received that. Um, and so I, I want to have the freedom to the liberty uh, to um, advocate for the convictions that I have. Um, and, but I, I also want to allow Christian liberty to those who might hold a different view. And I think, you know, it's been certainly here in Virginia uh, in my fellowship with our fellow Reformed Baptist churches, I think we've been able to enjoy that. We haven't had any knockdown, drag out arguments over this issue, mm. and you know we've had collegiality, and um, you know some people have have you know you know warmly agreed with the position. Some people have said I'm I'm thinking through it. Others have said I I you know disagree, but they've disagreed charitably. And so I think we've we've been able to have those those type of collegial um, 
interactions, and, I, and I'm thankful for that. Uh, again, I, I think you know I have to recognize that that the position that I'm putting forward is at present uh, at present a minority position, but uh, I'm I'm happy that 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 I can have the opportunity to advocate for it uh, as well. Does that does that answer? Does that get at what you yeah. were talking? about? Absolutely, uh, it's it's wonderful to see the breadth uh, of uh, you know on the, on this issue throughout IRBS too. It's it's wonderful mm. to see so many professors who would fully subscribe to the confession of faith, but would have slightly nuanced positions on on these issues. Uh, and I think, if anything, it's a great show of unity on those foundational doctrines, and then movement from from that point forward. Thank you so much, Dr. Riddle, for joining us. Uh, is there anything that you'd like to say in closing? Maybe you can point the listeners to where you podcast over at, I think it's Word Magazine. Right. Well, for, first of all, thank you guys for the invitation. It's been a pleasure to be here and chat with you guys. And I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed it and, and enjoy, enjoy getting to know you better and um, yeah, so I do. I have a podcast that's called Word Magazine, and I have a channel on YouTube. And I I do quite a few things on textual criticism, but sometimes I put up other things as well. Um, I, I sometimes I wonder if people think this is the only thing I ever talk about, and it's mainly because I because people I, it's 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 something that's gotten the most interest. Um, but I, I I am interested in more than just this topic. I know when we were when we were do, when we were doing the, um, uh, the the gospels class, I think I made the observation that ministers are generalists. Um, we have to have a general interest in many things, and so we're we're we, we have to explore and understand various aspects of systematic theology and practical theology and historical theology and church history and and preaching and counseling and everything else. But, you know, sometimes we, I think our, due to our own personal interests and inclinations, sometimes we do tend to, to, to have areas that we become maybe more specialized in. And I, I don't think we should ride them as hobby horses all the time. But this is, this just has happened to be an, an area that, that uh, I've spent more time studying. And um, so anyways, but, uh, but, but I, I think as a pastor, you know, we are generalists and uh, anyway, so you, you can find other topics I address, and, and I'm also on sermonaudio.com. And um, I just actually passed the, uh, um, just a, uh, two weeks ago, I think, the 2000th uh, recording of a sermon or a teaching or a podcast that's found on Sermon Audio. So there's a whole archive of, 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 of things that I've done there. And I have a blog, jeffriddle.net, and uh, I have a link. I have a link there to various things. I have a pretty active uh, academia.edu page where I have probably, I think there are probably 60 or 70 book reviews, articles on various things. Um, uh, so anyway, that's that's some of the ways that I can be uh, uh, interacted with online. It's been great to have you with us. Thank you to all of you who've tuned into this coffee house session today. You can go and find us at brokenwharf.com and to find more of these coffee house sessions, go to brokenwharf.com slash listen. You can find them all there. Thanks for tuning in and bye for now.